he retained, of course, the verdict of guilty for murder. This was still not what Iris Bentley was looking for. She wanted her brother declared innocent. She knew he had been unjustly robbed of his life, and she wanted more than a pardon. She wanted him fully exonerated. Iris died in 1997, but a year after her death, on the 30th of July 1998, she won her victory. The Court of Appeal quashed Derek Bentley's conviction for murder. This ruling said far more than simply he should not have been executed. 46 years and 242 days since the first sentence, the Court of Appeal declared there were never any grounds on which to punish Derek Bentley in the first place. If you're anything like me, when you hear that story, it's a true story, although it's gratifying to hear that justice was finally done, if you're anything like me, you also feel a slight or maybe an intense feeling of sorrow to think that Derek's name lived on for so long under such a cloud of guilt and shame when in fact he was innocent. And I want to gently suggest to us this morning that I think all of us can do something quite similar. We can all live our lives a little bit like that, spending our time, our lives, trying to get rid of guilt and shame. So this series of talks is called The Trial. It's based on the book of Romans in the New Testament. Uh, and Paul, who's the author of Romans, what he's doing is often is using legal language to frame his explanation of the gospel. That's what we've called the series The Trial. And each week we're looking at one particular angle of the gospel through, if you like, the legal lens of Paul's understanding in, gospel, in, in Romans. So, so far we've looked at how the gospel brings order. Secondly, we looked at how the gospel tells us that we need a judge. And then this morning, Paul's going to help us see something about the problem of getting rid of guilt and shame. So if you turn in your Bibles, if you have them, but it'll appear on the screen behind me, to Romans 3.23. If you have one of these black church Bibles, they're on page, that's on page 941. So Romans 3.23, and you'll see that Paul has something specific to say about the issue of guilt and shame. Paul says very succinctly and typically bluntly, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Paul, like the whole of the Bible, I guess, is pretty clear. Humanity has failed. It, we, have failed to live anything like in accordance with God's intentions. We've fallen, frankly, pretty spectacularly short of his perfect plan. And what Paul is effectively saying is we live, therefore, under a sentence of guilt. Now, you might be visiting us this morning, you might be exploring Christianity, as Andrew mentioned, and at this point, you may be thinking, surprise, surprise, I come along to church and here I am being told that I'm guilty, not good enough. Some guy at the front who's wagging his finger telling me that I've fallen short of some standard of God's. But I think if we just take Paul's sentence, concept more generally, whether we feel we've fallen short in God's eyes or not, whether we feel there's a sense of guilt in God's eyes or not, all of us, I think, would know what it is to experience guilt and to know what it is to want to get rid of it. So if anything like me, you probably would have experienced some degree of guilt just this week. Maybe it's the, the person uh, at work that you've offended, the friend that you've just lied to a little bit, that person that you just let down because you didn't deliver on what you promised to do. If anything like me, you will have experienced some degree of guilt, wouldn't you, just in the last week or so. So all of us do live in reality with an experience of guilt to some degree. And all of us want to get rid of it. 
All of us want to get rid of guilt and shame. That's in our nature. And what I'm going to do is look at three types of people, if you like, one of whom is Paul. But look at two others beforehand. Three types of people and how they tend to try and get rid of this problem of guilt and shame. So the first person, I haven't given them a name. I'm rather just summing up what they generally think. So this first person tends to say something like, I am guilty, but I'll pretend I'm not. I am guilty, but I'll pretend I'm not. That's the first solution to getting rid of guilt and shame. If you go right back to the beginning of the Bible, into those first few chapters of Genesis, if you know the story, Genesis 3 is a brilliant chapter. It basically tells you most of what you need to know about how the world works in many ways, how humanity works, how it relates to each other and to God. And at the beginning of Genesis in chapter 3, Adam and Eve show us, they unpack how this happens. They unpack the human proclivity, the human nature of acknowledging guilt but trying to pretend it isn't there. And they do it in three ways. I'll come to those in a second. But remember, Adam and Eve initially live in perfect harmony. Perfect harmony with themselves. Perfect harmony with each other. Perfect harmony with creation. Perfect harmony with God. Until, of course, if you know the story, a snake tempts them to eat the forbidden fruit. And if you read chapter 3 of Genesis, you'll see that the first thing that happens, as soon as they do that, the very first thing is they experience guilt and shame. And then they do three things to try and get rid of it. The first thing they do is they try and cover up, don't they? The first thing they do is try and cover up. They grab a fig leaf. They realize that they are naked and immediately seek to cover themselves up. Before, they were blissfully unaware, happy with their nakedness. Guilt and shame means that, first of all, they want to cover up. And I think in broader terms, we've seen that in the human psyche ever since. The desire to cover up human guilt and shame. It's just a very small example, but I wonder how many men have brought flowers for their wives, not as merely an innocent offering of love and affection, but kind of to cover up the fact they forgot to do all the other things during the day. To cover up. Covering up is a classic response of so many people to shame. We know we're guilty, but we think that we can cover it up. Often, we're using very good things. The fig leaf was not a negative thing. It's a beautiful part of creation. Often, we'll use good things to cover up or to get rid of shame. And Christians can do this in some ways almost more than any others. It's what I've begun to call moralism, I think. And by moralism, I mean that tendency that Christians can slip from the gospel towards moralism and we start using good things, good things we're, ways we're serving in church or, or good behaviors, and we can sometimes use those good things as a bit of a fig leaf to cover up something of the guilt and shame that we can feel. The second thing that Adam and Eve do to get rid of their guilt and shame after they tried to cover up is to hide. They leg it, basically. They try to hide from God. Again, remember, they've, all they've ever known up to this point is walking in the Garden of Eden in perfect harmony with God. Guilt and shame come in and they hide. They hide. And again, more broadly, we can see this throughout society. Many of us will attempt to hide from shame in all kinds of ways. So at work, if you know you've failed to complete the task, or you've offended your colleague, or you've made an error, sometimes what do we do? Well, we keep out of our boss's way. We hide the mistake, hoping it won't be seen. 
we just hide from the issue or from the person for a bit and it'll go away, as will my shame, hopefully, we can feel. And again, Christians, just like Adam and Eve, can sometimes do that more specifically with God. We can hide from God. So how many of you parents, I wonder, use the naughty step with your children? It's just going to appear behind me, I think, as a little reminder. And how many of you parents use the naughty step? I imagine a number of families in Kingston uh, who, inspired by Super Nanny, I think it was, will use the naughty step as a pretty effective means of disciplining and, and raising their kids. But it strikes me that as Christians, sometimes we can take ourselves off to the naughty step to kind of hide from God. We can feel like because of what we've done or how we're feeling about ourselves, actually what we need to do is to kind of take ourselves up to, off to the naughty step, kind of slightly punish us off a bit, sort of dust ourselves down, clean ourselves up, hide from God for a bit, and then we'll maybe come back into his presence. Something I found myself doing a lot over the years, and I've begun to experience real breakthrough in this year. When we get it wrong, not off to the naughty step, a little bit of penance for a bit, dust myself down. Now, God, I'm ready to come back into you. Hiding from God, hiding from guilt and shame is a part of human nature, it seems. And so let's apply this a bit to our, to our own lives, even a bit more. You see, maybe you're here this morning and you wouldn't have called it such until now. But actually, if you're honest, you're kind of, you've grabbed a fig leaf. Maybe something good. Maybe something very good. But actually, it's a fig leaf. And you're thinking, if I can keep it here, then it will mask my shame. It will cover up the shame that I feel. My financial shame won't be exposed if I can keep this fig leaf in front. And because it's a good thing, it should act as quite a nice protective wall. You might be sitting here thinking, I'm just hoping nobody will discover what I'm covering up. My shame won't be exposed. My financial chaos the affair that I'm having, the greed that I feel, the anger that bubbles up, I can just use this fig leaf and it will cover it up. Or maybe actually it's more of a hiding thing. You're hiding, maybe broadly speaking, from a person or from an issue or even from God himself. You know, I think, of course I'm not hiding from God himself. Here I am in church in the presence of God. I'm telling you, I've, I've been in church meetings where in my heart, basically I'm hiding from God. I might be here, you here this morning. I've lived in these spaces, as you can tell, over the years. And I'm telling you, if you don't know already, it's exhausting, isn't it? It's an exhausting way to live, to be covering up or to be hiding shame and guilt. It's so draining. And the third thing that Adam and Eve do, the third thing that Adam and Eve do to get rid of guilt is they blame. They pass the buck. So they try and cover up, then they try and hide, and God, of course, knows exactly what's going on. So he asks Adam, why did you eat the fruit? And what's Adam's first response? She made me. And what's Eve's response when God asks her the same question? She looks at the snake, it tempted me. Straight away, in the human nature, to get rid of guilt and shame, if you can't cover it up or you can't hide it, you will blame something or someone else. It all starts with Adam and Eve. When we think that we're the ones to deal with our guilt and we won't or we can't cover it up or hide it, we will often resort to blame. Not my fault. 
And if I'm honest, that is in my kind of natural default line of thinking all the time. Whenever somebody lays a criticism at my door or a suggestion that might be guilt in my life, my default thought usually is, how can I, it can't be me, how can I deflect this? There must be someone else or something else to blame. And you're looking at me totally blankly. Really, Philip, you're the only one that does that. <laughs> I would suggest I'm not the only one. But I remember being, when I was a teacher, I remember being challenged uh, by a parent who had the audacity to suggest that I'd given the wrong revision information to her child before an exam. And my default reaction was, no, 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 no. I didn't, of course I didn't do that, of course not. I think you'll find that Michael just didn't listen to the instructions. Clearly I would have given the right information. I'm sorry, it's Michael's fault. And then I checked my notes. And sure enough, I had given the wrong page numbers for the textbook for before the exam. It wasn't Michael's fault. It was my fault. But my default thinking, when some criticism, some guilt was laid at my door, my default thinking was, how can I deflect this elsewhere? And the point here in these three things is that when someone is living and they're using often good behavior to cover up or to hide or to pass the blame, what we're doing when we live like that is essentially we're trying to get rid of guilt and shame ourselves, And it's exhausting. And you can seem really, outwardly, you can seem confident, assured, relaxed, full of humor, but inwardly, it's exhausting and we're full of shame. And if I'm honest, the church, I think, broadly speaking, has sometimes fueled that kind of way of thinking and living. Sometimes the church hasn't wanted to be a place of honesty and authenticity. It's exuded an atmosphere of just keep it to yourself. Cover it up, hide it, deflect it, whatever. Keep it to yourself. We'd rather not talk about it. And so it doesn't really surprise me, and of course I'm painting a caricature to some extent, but it doesn't really surprise me that much of modern, you might call it modern liberal society, has rejected that kind of thinking. I've called it moralism. Sometimes I call it kind of conservative tradition or religion, if you like, if those words are helpful. And modern society has largely rejected that, and I don't really blame them. I don't want to live like that, many people have said. Because the people who do it well seem quite proud, but also it feels quite bleak and oppressive to live like that. And so we found that in the 21st century, much of our society has rejected that way to deal with guilt and shame, which brings us on to the second type of person and how they get rid of guilt and shame. And it's much of modern society. They wouldn't, we, they wouldn't say, I am guilty and I'll try and mask it, pretend it's not there, deal with it myself. They'll just say, I, I just reject the notion of guilt altogether. This is the second type of person. I just reject the notion of there being a God who could or would find me guilty. And that's how I'll get rid of the problem of guilt and shame. I just reject the notion, the concept of it. So let me give you two illustrations to show you what I mean. When I was at university, welcome to all of you uh, new students who are with us. When I was at university, it was a little longer than I care to admit. Uh, I was a Christian, but I kind of oscillated, I suppose, from, frankly, a degree of moralism, wanting to behave well, towards just not being able to behave well and throwing the towel in altogether. I'm quite a black or white thinker. I tend to go from one to the other, nothing much in between. And that's how I kind of lived a little bit at university. And when I wasn't behaving well and I threw the towel in, I would tend to buy into the, the mentality of my, my good mates that I was living with 
And so Wednesday night was our kind of main night uh, in the week to go out. And the mentality that I sometimes bought into, which all of, the, all of them really believed, was it's Wednesday night, do whatever you want, let your hair down, go crazy, there's no consequences to what we do, just do what you want. Guilt? Consequences? Shame? We've left that behind. Old-fashioned idea. Do as you wish. That's what we did. But we didn't really fully believe that. We just acted for a bit like we did. I'm not sure that anybody who says there's no such thing as being held to account, there's no such thing as consequences like guilt and shame, I'm not sure that anybody who says that actually lives like they really believe it. We just delayed it for a while. We just delayed consequences, often known as the walk of shame the following morning. That's the consequence. So we didn't, be- we didn't really believe what we said. We just delayed it for a while. No one who says there's no such thing as guilt, shame, and consequences actually, I think, lives like they really believe that. Because if you really believe that and take it to its logical extreme, no guilt, no judgment, no consequence, do whatever you want, like, society would be complete anarchy. We'd have bedlam. And if Kingston is anything, it is not a place of anarchy in Bedlam. We have got wonderful, generally, systems and structures pretty much to mean that human beings can't do whatever they want. And we like the fact because it helps us, it helps humans flourish. Second example, I don't know if any of you have seen a um, program called Hunted on Channel 4. We've begun to get into it a little bit in our office. And have you seen it at all? It's on Channel 4. It's basically pretty irresponsible television, which is probably why I quite like it. And basically, what they do is they get a bunch of members of the public, and you're given one hour to disappear, and then this kind of crack squad of former counter-terrorism officers and police detectives will basically hunt you down, and you've got 28 days to try and stop, try and avoid being caught by their clever techniques. It's quite a fun TV, I think. And there's one little moment in it which is really interesting. And it's where this, um, this woman is, I won't tell you the whole scene, but she's basically submitting a CV, like a job application thing. And rather than um, kind of giving quite a sort of obvious, I've done all these good things as you would do in a CV, it's very much like she writes things in there that you would never put in a CV normally. I did this, did that, did this. And her whole attitude is, this is who I am. This is who I am. Take me or leave me. Yeah, I would. You, you might not like that, but... This is what I've done. You can take me or leave me, but don't... And she, she says, you mustn't judge me. Don't judge me, just take me as I am. This is who I am. It's a really interesting little insight into that side of things. Her basic point is, there is no authority that can tell me I'm right, I'm wrong. It's just who I am. And so the point of these two little illustrations is, on the one hand, modern liberal society, like me and my mates on a Wednesday night, kind of rejects the idea of there being any consequences to guilt, shame, And on the other hand, like this girl with the CV, we reject the notion that there is an authority who could tell us that we might be guilty. That make sense? And again, if you track it all the way back to Adam and Eve, you see exactly that aspect of fallen human nature with them. In a kind of ultimate and original sense, Adam and Eve did both those two things, didn't they? Think about it. What did the snake say to them in the garden? And I'm paraphrasing a bit here. But along the lines of, die? You you won't really die. God doesn't mean that. Frankly, God's just a bit restricted and oppressed. No, no, you'll live. You'll you'll be like God. Come on, eat. And they did. They believed him. Adam and Eve bought into the notion that there's no such thing as guilt and shame as a consequence. And they bought into the notion 
that there's no authority that can tell you whether you're guilty. And human beings have lived like that with one foot in either camp or both feet in one ever since. And I appreciate I'm being simplistic in a way, but I'm trying to help us understand a little bit of how the human heart works. And the Bible tells us more and more how the human heart works throughout the Old Testament, after Adam and Eve. We see a kind of a study of humanity in many ways. God's people, the people of Israel, if their story is anything, it's a story of grappling with guilt and shame all the time. How do we deal with it? And in some ways, their kings, their leaders, personify the struggles of the people. So King David is just one example. And some of you will know the story of David and Bathsheba. And so David finds himself as the king on, his, on, the, on the rooftop of his palace, isn't he? One hot Middle Eastern summer's afternoon, dusty, wants to go and cool down, finds himself on the palace roof, surveying his city, his empire. And if you know the story, you know that David spies somebody else doing a similar thing. A beautiful woman bathing naked on top of her rooftop. And in that moment, I don't know exactly what he thought, but I think it's a reasonable guess to say that in that moment, he would have thought things along the lines of, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want, and I want her. And in that moment, he decided that he could do as he wished, and he decided there's not going to be any consequences. I can, I can just take her, I can use her, frankly, and nobody will ever know. That was the lie that he bought into in that crucial moment. No consequences, and there's no authority except me who can make the decision. So he had, his, he had both feet in the, first, in, the, in the modern liberal camp, if that makes sense. And if you know the story, of course, Bathsheba has no choice in that culture but to accept the summons of this king. David sleeps with Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant very quickly. And at that point, David puts his feet in the other camp, the other way of dealing with guilt and shame. Because now he knows guilt and shame. He knows what he's done. And he wants to still rub it out. So he, now he goes into the cover-up camp. Does that make sense? So initially, he was ignoring the idea of consequences and ignoring the idea of there being an authority other than him. Now he knows guilt and shame, so he's got to cover it up. So he calls uh, Bathsheba's husband back from the battle line. He gets him drunk. He persuades him to sleep with his wife, thinking if they sleep together, then Bathsheba's baby will assume to be his, and it'll be fine. I'll cover it up. Uriah doesn't do that. He refuses to do that. He wants to stay with his, with his men, with his soldiers. So David now has got to go even further in the cover-up, hasn't he? So now he sends Uriah to the worst part of the battle where he knows if he fights in that part of the battle, he'll be killed. And he is. And then David can marry Bathsheba. And of course, Bathsheba's baby will assume to be his because they just got married and it'll be assumed to be... No one's going to check the diary too closely. Cover-up. Just that one example of one person in the story of the Bible oscillating from the two sides of the human heart because he's trying to rub out guilt and shame. And neither work. If you haven't got the point so far, neither of them work. And Paul knows this. Paul knows exactly this. And we'll go back and we'll go into the final solution, which is Paul's solution which is neither to deny consequences and authority or to deal with himself, Paul's solution is very different. I'll go back to Romans 3.23. I'm going to read a few more verses this time. Let's see again what Paul said. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now there's some words there like propitiation and redemption and justification that I don't particularly want to get into, but the broader point that Paul is making, and he makes it throughout Romans, is he denies that the solution to guilt and shame is to try and get rid of it yourself. He denies that the solution to guilt and shame is just to pretend it doesn't exist and reject the concept. He says there is guilt and shame. We're all under guilt and shame. And the answer is Jesus. Specifically, Jesus' death or Jesus' blood, as he says. And we're coming into the home stretch now. It's fascinating to me that Jesus' death on the cross is perhaps the most shameful act possible. If you've ever studied the crucifixion, or just even now as you're contemplating it, you'll know that it wasn't just a horrifically painful death the Romans had concocted for their victims. It was a horrifically shameful death, deliberately so. John Piper, who's an American church leader, describes it like this. Shame was stripping away every earthly support that Jesus had. His friends gave way in shaming abandonment. His reputation gave way in shaming mockery. His decency gave way in shaming nakedness. His comfort gave way in shaming torture. Gave way to the utterly undignified, degrading, shaming reflexes of grunting and groaning and screeching. Jesus died in utter shame, deliberately. Because the shameful death of Jesus puts to death the two lies that humanity had believed ever since Adam and Eve. Let me say that again. It's a beautiful and horrendous irony all at the same time. The shameful death of Jesus puts to death the two lies that humanity had always believed. Remember the first lie, no consequences. Don't tell me about right and wrong and guilt and shame. I live free, modern liberalism. There's no consequences to what I do and you can't hold me to account. Jesus puts to death that lie by his death. How? Well, later on in Romans, what does Paul say? The wages of sin is death. Sin is what? Effectively is our guilt and our shame. So Jesus' death proves the consequences of our guilt has to be death. Why? Because he was without any guilt. The Bible says over and over again, he was without sin, without guilt. It's fascinating to me that even those that hated him the most, that wanted him killed the most, they couldn't pin any guilt on him at all other than he claimed to be God. Think about that for a moment. Those that most wanted him dead, that would have made up anything to make him dead, all they could pin on him was that he claimed to be God. Jesus was without any guilt. So the fact that he died means it must be my guilt that held him there. It must be my shame that pinned him there. The guilt of every human being in the eyes of a perfect God brings real and deadly consequences, death. And yet Jesus absorbs all of those consequences upon himself. And so Paul says, and I'm paraphrasing, that is a gift of grace and you can receive it through faith. What's the second lie 
that Jesus puts to death. He puts to death the first type of person, if you like, that I described before. The lie that says, I can pretend that I'm without guilt and shame by covering it up or by hiding it or by blaming somebody else. If that were possible, Jesus would not have had to die. Do you see that? If it were possible to cover up my own shame or to hide it or to deflect it somewhere else, God himself would not have had to go to the cross. So I say again, on the cross, it is a brutal, beautiful irony all at the same time. The death of Jesus puts to death those two lies. That there are no consequences and that I can deal with it myself. And here's where it starts to become increasingly personal. Because if you're anything like me, as I mentioned before, you can have a foot in both camps. So we can sometimes believe, can't we, that our sin isn't really that serious, that it won't matter. How many times do you feel that little voice? Just this once. Just this once. It won't have consequences. And frankly, who's to tell me what's right and wrong? All of us can put a foot in that camp. All of us can. Or we can put one or both feet in the moralist camp. I am guilty and it's up to me to sort it out, cover it up, hide it, blame it, not God. That's moralism. That says that I can accomplish what is needed through my behavior, through my good deeds. Neither of them are the gospel and neither of them work and both of them are exhausting. I can't be casual about my sin. I can't be because the gospel tells me that all of my guilt and shame is the thing that pinned Jesus to the cross in total shame. So how can I be casual about my sin when it's mine that pinned him there? but it's on him. It's on him. It's not on me. It's on him. So I don't need to cover up. I don't need to use a fig leaf. I don't need to hide. I don't need to deflect attention because it's all on him. So I can live transparent in front of God. I can live transparent in front of you because all of my shame is always and continually on him. Remember Derek Bentley at the beginning? It's an innocent man whose name lived on under a guilty verdict. And I'm suggesting that too many Christians can live like Derek Bentley's memory, under a sentence of guilt when in fact they are utterly innocent in Christ. Listen, consequences of sin are grave. Death. Forever. That's why Jesus had to die. But guilt is not the inheritance of the Christian. In Christ, we can get rid of guilt. The very problem I set up at the beginning that people have been trying to deal with for centuries and centuries and centuries by masking it or rejecting it, we can get rid of guilt in Christ because he has done so. That thing that is in every human gut that wants to get rid of guilt is accomplished in God himself. So come on, whatever your situation, whatever you might be hiding, big or small, listen, I I can't promise that the consequences to unmasking things are not significant. They probably are. That's the nature of sin. But guilt will go. Shame will go. You see, you can be rightly ashamed of actions, but not live in shame. You see the difference? 
You can be rightly ashamed of things, but not live in shame. The consequence of coming to God cannot be, it can't be that you're shamed in his sight. Why? It's all pinned on Jesus. Let me just close with this last piece of scripture. Later on in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews says these amazing words that I've read so many times, but I missed the last sentence. Chapter 12 of Hebrews, first couple of verses. The writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And this is the bit that I've missed. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I'd never really seen that. Jesus despised shame. What does that mean? So it's a remarkable phrase. That means that Jesus looked at shame squarely in the face, and nobody had to confront shame like Jesus. He looked at shame squarely in the face and said, Shame, I despise you. You are defeated. I look at the joy of winning men and women and children to my father. And in comparison to that shame, you are nothing. All the humiliation, shame that you've thrown at me on the cross, it's nothing compared to the joy of what I'm accomplishing. Shame, you are dead. That's what that means. Shame is dead in Christ. So I come back to my silly little analogy of the naughty step. If you're in Christ... You never, ever take yourself off to the naughty step to dust yourself down for a bit, to live on your own, to hide for a bit, and then try and come back into God's presence. All of your shame is on Christ. He despised it and defeated it for you. The life of the Christian is to take sin seriously, to get busy killing it in the light of the fact that Jesus has killed it. The life of the Christian is never to live in guilt and shame. Never to live in guilt and shame. It's to live free, with poise. A Christian lives with poise. Humble. At the fact that Jesus did have to die for me as the only way it could be dealt with. Confident and bold. Because I know it's dealt with. And I'm not spending my life trying to mask it, cover it up, hide it, deal with it myself. It's all pinned on In a second, I'm going to invite the, the band up and we're going to continue sharing communion together, which we're doing each week. And each week I'm trying to help us take communion with a specific gospel narrative, gospel focus in place. So if you're a Christian, you're going to take communion this morning. I want you to be chewing on that wine-soaked bread or blood-soaked body and contemplating on the shame that Jesus experienced and the shame that he defeated. Everything I've done and will ever do is pinned to him. He despised shame. He defeated shame. And we eat the bread and take the wine, celebrating that fact. Taking sin seriously, confessing it to God and each other, maybe within the communion setting, and living free and confident and full of poise and without an ounce of shame. That's the inheritance of the Christian. That's what you're invited to. 
If you're not yet a Christian or you're exploring things, you should feel under no pressure at all to take communion. But don't opt out. Why not think? Why not think? Why are these people doing this? Why do they believe what they believe? Why is this ritual so significant? What do I think about this issue of guilt and shame being a reality and not something I can reject or deal with myself? Take time to think it through. And we'd love to chat with you and answer questions afterwards. So if the band and the communion team could join me at the front. Uh, they should, they will be, in a second, there'll be various wonderful servers who have communion. We have uh, bread, which you dip in wine here at the front, on my left and my right. And at the back, top left where you're sitting, is gluten-free and juice, if that's your preference. And we're going to sing a song called How Deep is the Father's Love. And there's a wonderful line where you can sing, And all my sin is pinned upon him. All of my shame is upon him. I look up there and I see it dealt with forever. Shall we stand? We'll sing. We'll celebrate. We'll take communion. We'll pray with each other if you want to. It's a ritual, but it's an informal one and one that you can use to enjoy and acknowledge God. Lord Jesus, we thank you. And we are in awe of your accomplished work on the cross. Jesus, all I can virtually do is to imagine the pain that you went through, but the shame that you went through is indescribable. But it was a deliberate thing that you were doing, taking upon yourself all of the shame of humanity, all of it. So Jesus, we look upon you now. We look upon you and know that our shame and our guilt is pinned to you forever. We want to be Christians who take sin seriously and get busy killing it and living in the freedom of the gospel that says that shame and guilt is not our inheritance, not now, not tomorrow, not forever. We love you, Jesus. We worship you, and we follow you. Amen.